the Farm Advisory Service podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government. Hello and welcome to the Farm Advisory Service podcast. My name is Mary Jane Laurie and today I'm talking to Jim Shanks of Stanhill Farm in the Scottish Borders. Stanhill is a family farm which has diversified from dairying to include renewables and a large tomato enterprise. So good afternoon, Jim. Afternoon, how are you? <laughs> yeah, we're doing all right, yeah. So can you start by introducing yourself a bit? Yes, I am Jim Shanks, uh, Stanhill Farm. Uh, we say hoik here rather than in the borders. Um, oh, right. <laughs> it, um, yes, you're in the borders. You're either hoik, Jedba, or God forbid, Gala. Um, so <laughs> that's that's how we identify ourselves. I won't ask you what you think of Berwickshire, where I'm from then. <laughs> oh, well, Berwickshire's too far away to have a prejudice uh, against it. Right. <laughs> my, my wife's from Berwickshire, so okay. I, I really watch what I say. Um, <laughs> no, um, we've been doing renewables was what I set out on doing enough field scholarship and renewables and that was where I kind of went into and I guess the glass house was a spin-off of the renewable enterprise it was just something okay. I saw along the way but quite often that's the best the, the best thing to get your teeth into is something maybe that you don't specifically set out to do but something mm-hmm. you see in the side and think oh, hang on that might work so that's how the, the tomatoes came about. But there's a there's a much longer story than, than that. So how long have you been farming at Standhill as a family and as yourself? My grandfather bought Standhill at Hoyk Auction Mart in nineteen fifty one. Um so we've always went east for a farm and west for a wife. Every time uh, the generation <laughs> has come down the, the line apart from me and I get I went to Berwick for my wife, so I haven't moved east either. So we've came through the generations from Kintyre to Ayrshire to Dumfries and Galloway through to Hoyke. So that's where we've we've kind of stopped. I went to college in 1996 at SAC mm-hmm. and I did an HND at SAC, which I very much enjoyed. And then I came back and did a Young Farmers Exchange to Canada and a summer in 2002, which I enjoyed even more. <laughs> um, so I guess I've been making the decisions on the farm since about 2005, 2006. Okay. And had you always been attracted to a career in farming as a, as a young boy? Is that what you always thought you would do? Or is it just something that um, you, you came to a bit later? Well, I remember telling the careers advisor, who I didn't really have a huge amount of time for, that uh, he said to put down your career preferences and I put down poll tax collector and uh, striker for rangers and probably get out. So uh, after those two, I, uh, I guess farming was next um, involved. I wasn't specifically driven towards farming. I really kind of I got the bug, actually, when I went to college. It was something that yeah. um, I, I got the bug for, and especially dairy side of it. I really do enjoy the dairy side, and it's what gets still it still gets me out of bed in the morning, uh, the dairy farming. Even though it's such a small part of the, the overall business there now, it's still what I love to read the dairy magazines and 
hear what's going on, the new techniques, and then getting a, you know buying a new little bit of equipment for the dairy to see how it works. That's actually what really still gives me the the, the get up and go in the the right. morning. The other bits right. are fun, but I still I still like the dairy side of things. And I've always said when they when they put me in the ground, it will say Jim Shanks Dairy Farmer, and uh, that's how I will will always be remembered. And do you think that's the animal side of things, just that connection with your animals daily that you that you enjoy, or there's a horrible emotional connection to a dairy herd. Yeah, um, and I say a horrible; it's a great thing, and it, it's one of the worst things as well. It can really drive people's decisions mm-hmm. way way more than they would ever admit. That when you've got dairy cows and those generations of cows have been here as long as your grandfather, great grandfather. You don't want to be the one that gives it up. You've just there is just that, and it can be such a millstone round somebody's yeah. neck. And yeah. to a point, it's been a millstone round round mine, and I'm still doing dairying, and I still milk the cows the odd time, and it's it's something that, that I like, and I, I I wouldn't I wouldn't want to give up. But my goodness, it takes up a huge amount of my time for for the the return I get. But I still, it's that emotional connection. It's yeah. a sad thing to say, but I don't want my son to have that. My son's two years old, and I right. don't I don't want him. I want him to be able to make decisions without that emotional connection that a dairy farm quite often brings. I think it's the fact that you're handling them twice a day, and you're you're in among them in in a way that you're not with any other livestock, isn't it? And it's so tying because yeah. you can't miss a milking, and you can't just decide to go off for the weekend until you've got something organised. It's all very. As you say, it is, it is a bit like a millstone, isn't it? Because you can't just quit. You've got to keep yeah, going. And they've all got the personalities. But yeah. yeah, the commitment. And I've always, if you can do dairy farming, you can do anything. And I've always said that. That yeah. the commitment, the expertise, the technology, the the management of a whole breadth of, of skills that's involved in dairying. Once you can do that and the, the bloody well hard work, that's involved mm-hmm. in it. Once you can do that, you can do anything. And we've milked cows here since 1951, two times of the day, every single day since 1951. Wow. And when you say that, you think, oh, goodness, that's that's quite something. But it's true. And it's a commitment that a lot of people just don't have in modern life. More people think they're entitled to all the time off, the weekends off, the holidays in the sun. Well, if we've wanted that, we've had to make sure that the business has been has, has covered the time off that we've got and that these cows are milked two times a day, uh, every single day. And we've done that since 1951. We have not missed a single milking because you can't. Yeah, that's incredible when you put it like that, though. But, yeah, yeah. it's... Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so we'll take it back a little step. So what sort of size of farm is Stanthill and, and what was it originally like when, when it was bought in, in the early 50s? Well, it was a it's five hundred acre, five hundred and seven acres, mm-hmm. and it was a dairy farm, and that was what attracted my grandfather. And I think when he bought it, when he moved from the west over here, um, yeah. that he was looking for a dairy farm. But that wasn't unusual back then. And uh, most farms, and well, most, but there was quite a few farms that were dairying. But since they've just became arable beef farms, so we've kind of bucked the trend in that respect. Uh, we've also bucked the trend that we've generally stayed at the same numbers of cows that we've had really since 
we haven't moved that much since the early 80s. Um, okay. So that, that does kind of buck the trend as, as well. But that's that's more me going going off elsewhere and doing other other things. Mm-hmm. So, um, but we were just, we were always considered a big dairy through the 50s, 60s and 70s, but uh, everybody else has kind of caught up and overtaken us. So we're not really a big dairy. We're, we're just over 200 cows. And, right, um, okay. So it's not really a big dairy anymore. Yeah. And so when you came home from, from college and started to take over the farm, was dairy the, the only enterprise or was there other livestock? Or? Yeah, we, we had other associated livestock. We had arable. Yeah. Um, about okay. half the farm was in arable. A little bit of sheep and the odd beef cross that came off. Uh, we reared our own heifers. So it was a predominantly dairy farm. It was right. a dairy farm. There was other little bits and bobs, but the arable would have been the main one. That we would have had about two hundred and fifty acres uh, of crop. And then, okay. so that that was we were arable stroke dairy, I guess. And did you have were you were you farming with father or uncle or brothers or anything at that point? Uh, yeah, I came I came back from college, right? Know it all, little shit, <laughs> and, as a lot of people do. And didn't realise that if you're going to go somewhere, you've got to take your family with you. Yes. Um, and you can't fight them all the time because it just ends up uh, in, in a mess. So it took me a long while to get that out of the system, to be quite frank. Okay. As, as, a, lot of people, as a lot of people do, it's probably one of my pieces of advice to... Uh, to students that are at SAC is, is go easy when you get back home. <laughs> Emotional intelligence is not something people in their early 20s have as much of as people in their early 30s and 40s. Yeah. Um, you, you, you become more knowledgeable as, as life goes on in that respect. So that's probably, I think, one of the biggest challenges, one of the biggest challenges I've, I've had. I think Henry Winkler that played the Fonz once said, he said, by the time you realise your father was right, you've got a son that thinks you're wrong. And that's, that's, just, that's just normal, I think, mm-hmm. for, for most families. Yes, I would say so. So, so when you came home and was your father still very much involved yes. in the business? Yep. Yes, and that was part of the problem in the early noughties that the, the staff had two bosses. Okay. We, we had to find a solution to that because it, it was doing nobody any good. I was in father's hair, he was in my hair, and sometimes the, the staff didn't know what was clear to them and um, what they were doing. So yeah. we had yeah. two bosses. And believe it or not, it wasn't me that found the solution. It was mum and dad that found the solution. Um, I've got a sister. She she went to be a vet. She uh, she, okay. she, she puts down animals in, in Camp Carlisle now. Um, it's the, it's the great reward for if you if you put down somebody's pet, they shower you with chocolates. Uh, whereas if you make the pet better, they moan about the bill. Uh, well, yeah, that's very true. Anyway, that's, that's, that's me veering off track a little. The um, yeah, mum and dad went and made cheese. They were always okay. in the cheese. Um, they they always had a fridge full of cheese. And they realised that it wasn't quite working at, at home. So they went to South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, uh, mainly to visit dad's, some of dad's family in Australia. They, mm-hmm. They'd never got around to seeing all their life. They'd never been to Australia. They'd never been south of the equator. And they did that, but they looked at cheese places along the way, and they okay. came back and set up a cheese business, and they ran a all cheese right. business for eight years, which was very wow. successful. 
Yeah. Um, and but the great thing about it was again it got me out of dad's hair and dad out of my hair and it allowed me to make my mistakes on the farm without a father saying, What the hell did you do that for? And was he quite good at stepping back yeah. at that point? Was he so yeah, busy with his yeah. cheese that he, they let you get on? Yeah. We did the clean end and we converted the old parlour and we put in a new parlour and then converted the old parlour into a clean space and yep. mum and dad did the clean work they had to be separate and that was the great thing about it they yeah. had to be separate because they were dealing with clean uh, scrupulously clean uh, environment and I was not so it <laughs> <laughs> uh, got dad out of my hair it got me out of dad's hair and it worked horrifically well the cheese became very very popular and they then properly retired that was one of the only downside of it they just got so busy and mum was she retired from teaching um, mm-hmm. and she was busier than she'd ever been as a teacher and probably dad was a wee bit busier than than, than he'd been as a farmer but they, they enjoyed it because it was a social thing you went out and you met yeah. folk what yeah. the so they, they they really enjoyed it and it, it was just base it made a little bit of cash um, not a huge, huge amount, but they had the offers to go big, but they never wanted to become the Bill Gates of the cheese world. That's not what it was about. And they just they, yeah. they employed three part-time folk and it, it became very well known and very it was very successful for them. And they properly retired in 2014, okay. I think it was, from, from that. Um, so that and was... Are, yep. are they still involved in the farm now or did they, when they moved to the cheese, did they take a full step back from being involved in any of the business decisions? I guess you could say, no, they're not involved. Well, no shit, I better not say that because they'll, they'll shoot <laughs> me. Mum still does a bit of the books of the, the, the farm, okay. not them all. And dad is the, the Mr. Fix-It, odd job, uh, jack of all trades, master of none. Um, and he is very, very handy for all the plumbing, electrical things that go wrong or yeah. anything like that. So he's a very, very handy man to have about. But he does, um, he, he they, they do have their own house, which is a mile and a half along the road. And um, they have the likes of today. We, we sometimes, we take a pallet of loose tomatoes up to Glasgow Fruit Market once a week. My mum does that. She she goes up in the van with a pallet of tomatoes to Glasgow, um, has a bit crack with a guy in the fruit market and uh, does it as a day out sort of thing. Okay. So these, these yeah. are the sort of things that normally we wouldn't actually do, but because they're there, well, yeah, they, they enjoy it. So, so yeah. it works out well that way. I don't think you ever fully retire if you've been a farmer, do you? Because you just don't know what to do with yourself. Yeah, so there is a bit of that that uh, yeah. they, they want to keep involved and and um, sometimes it's about reading between the lines as well. Sometimes it's understanding what they're not saying more than what they are saying. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and they all say the same about me. It's yeah. we're, we're, we're human beings. We're all queer beasts uh, at the end of the day. So uh, so that was sort of late 2000s. You were finding your own feet as, as your own farmer. They were doing their cheese thing. What sort of changes did you start making to the business at that stage? You mentioned the Nuffield Scholarship. Was that mm-hmm. about that same time? Yeah, it was. I, I guess maybe what I've just jumped over, and I mentioned it early on, was the Young Farmers Exchange to Canada. Oh, that, yes. That I went, uh, it was meant to be three months, it ended up four months, it was that bloody good. Um, that I had a great time out there. That really pushed me out of my comfort zone, staying with different families week after week after week. Yeah. Um, I'm still very much in touch with the vast, vast majority of them there just now. 
and I just think that the Young Farmers are a fantastic organisation and don't don't get the credit that they they deserve. Uh, yeah. they, they have done so much for me, um, and w- w- without them, I, I certainly wouldn't be the person that I am today. Um, I got a huge amount out of Young Farmers, especially especially that trip to Canada. So yeah, um, that. Again, it's it's gone out of the comfort zone, and that's what I've done is just tried to go out of the comfort zone all the time. But I didn't, I don't know, I didn't know what was coming to me then. But I did it, and and there was awkward moments, but you learn from them, and you you, you become you, you become more I guess more more knowledgeable. And um, but it was a really 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 good experience. Mm-hmm. Um, around two thousand eight, I applied for a Nuffield scholarship. I started looking at energy in the dairy sector and yeah. how to reduce energy in the dairy sector. And then, like a lot of Nuffield scholarships, you go out there and you you then actually see something that's maybe not quite your subject, but you think, well, why the hell am I studying my subject when I could actually be getting much more? And I realized that there was far more to gain by generating energy from a dairy farm than than trying to save on the consumption. Okay, you know, savings to be made in the consumption. But I realized at that time that there was there was huge potential, huge potential, because diversification before then generally on farms was setting up a tea room, setting up a cheese business, those sort of things. Yeah. And they didn't make a massive impact on uh, farm incomes, uh, not nearly as much as, as a, a, a real efficiency drive or – um, looking at the, the costs and reducing costs within the existing business, they, they didn't make them up. But I, I saw renewables being able to actually make a real impact, and that the use of our land to generate energy and food, there was huge potential. So my my topic ended up energy from agriculture. Okay. Um, I studied. I went to Sweden, Denmark, and Germany again, right out of the comfort zone. Mm-hmm. Sweden and Denmark were fine; they would speak English to me, but the Germans wouldn't. Oh, um, they would. Right. Uh, they, they would. They would if they. I mean, I'm talking generally. And uh, the people that I'd organise visits, they they could speak English, but in general, the Germans, if you, if they know that you'd made an effort to speak German, so I had all these CDs learn German. I never done German. <laughs> So I had all these CDs in the car every between all, when I was in Sweden, Denmark. That's what I was doing was trying to learn German. So at least if you could utter a few words, they would yeah. say, "Okay, I will speak English to you." Yeah, <laughs> because you've tried I, I yeah. several times, but it was uh, really again outside the comfort zone. In Germany, you couldn't. I I wasn't good at German. Um, you were. It was difficult driving. Um, it was. At night, you couldn't you couldn't watch the TV because yeah. there was no English speaking. You couldn't um, go down to the bar and speak to somebody. You couldn't read the newspapers. It was very very difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, the only the only really British speaking I got was when you were near a British army base in Germany, okay. and okay. that you would be FBS radio. So all that really it puts you in the minority, and you then understand what people in the minority over here have to go through. Um, when you've been in a minority yourself, again, it's, it's about out of comfort zone. And in Germany, Sweden, and Denmark, it was biogas, wind, uh, okay. hydro, um, solar down the south of Germany, a lot of solar down the south of Germany, biomass. And then I went to the States and did tour Wisconsin, Minnesota, um, Iowa, 
And that was that was great fun. That was really the, the Americans were just everybody was just desperate to know what you were doing and took a real okay. interest in you. And that was that was quite an easy trip that uh, out to America as part of the, the Nuffield Scholarship. And at that time over here, renewables were just kind of starting to take off, weren't they? Yeah. Really, I mean, there wasn't many people had solar, and certainly not biomass. Um, yeah. So. That's right. So, um, so you did that trip and learned all these 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 great things. When you came home, what did you? What was your first step to, to changing things at home? What did I What did I do? Well, I, that, the, the Nuffield was about a two year process, so I was already working on things through the Nuffield. But um, I, I guess I put in for I had two wind projects, and I never got any of them. Um, me okay. and the the, uh, the the local council were didn't want when they basically when I was starting to apply they were drawing up the, the drawbridge um, but me being entirely stubborn uh, decided I, I was going to roll up the sleeves and have a fight anyway <laughs> uh, I didn't get yeah. and I got the biogas I put in for a biogas plant and I got it through planning but I couldn't get grid for it I didn't have enough capacity of generation to uh, to stomach the grid offer, which was eight hundred twenty one thousand pounds, and wow. so I ended up with no wind turbines and um, biogas that was through planning that I couldn't connect to the grid on its own. Oh, how frustrating! And I was kind of nowhere, and I thought I've done all this work and research, and I've known how to do it, and it's just not worked for me until out of the blue came a came a phone call. Um, one afternoon, it was it was August something I can't remember the year, but it was a guy from Scottish Power, mm-hmm. and it was completely out of the blue. He said, "Are you Jim Shanks?" Yes, yes. He said, "Right, we want a meeting with you." He said, "We are tired of your agents. Um, we we want a meeting for two reasons. We are tired of your agents hitting us on the head with a hammer, um, <laughs> trying to force a grid connection from it." <laughs> And we think what we are telling your agents is not what they are telling you. So they said, would you come up um, to Leith and have a meeting with us? And I said, I jumped at the chance because Scottish Power don't have meetings with guys like me. They speak to to big people and and, uh, um, folk with with fancy suits and that sort of thing. So I said, right, yes. And they were excellent. And they said, look, you've been at this a long time and you've been trying your, 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 your daftest to get this grid connection. These are the problems we've got. They said our, the Scottish Borders is the worst area for grid connection that we have, and you are in the worst 1% of the Scottish Borders. So, so that tells us where we're, where we're coming from here. But at that time, they had a guy called Ewan Norris who specialised in getting little guys like me grid connection with a bit of European money behind them. Okay. And Ewan did it. He got me the biogas, um, and I couldn't get the wind because I didn't didn't get the planning for the wind. But I got the biogas, and in two thousand and fourteen, September two thousand fourteen, we got up and running with the with the biogas. But by then, I had I had got the bug for glass houses, okay. and when I travelled Sweden, Denmark, and Germany, every time I saw a big anaerobic digester plant there was a big glass house next to it. And I thought, well, I understand what's happening here. They're selling the electricity, but they're being very efficient and using their byproducts to, to create something else. So the heat and the carbon dioxide they put through a glass house 
and generate produce through there. Uh, okay. Yeah. Easy to understand. And the the Continentals have been doing this for, for donkeys. So I started saying, oh, maybe that might work for me. So I joined a group called, well, it's the British Tomato Working Party. I'm actually on a Zoom with them after this. Okay. And the, I traveled with them. The first visit we went to was in the Loire Valley, which is a tremendous visit. We would go and visit tomato glass houses and then just go out and drink wine at night. It was, it was <laughs> perfect. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, went to Holland, went all over England um, and just did another Nuffield. I went and studied other glass houses. I studied how it worked. I went along to the Tomato Working Party meetings. They were exceptionally good. They, they told me a huge amount of things and, and I really got the bug for it. I think 2012 might have played a part as well when, when it was the wettest year that I can yeah. ever remember. I yeah. do remember 1985, but very, very vaguely. But 2012, I, I regard as, as my wettest year. Yes. And I thought, gosh, would it not be great to put a glass roof over some of this farm and, and be able to turn <laughs> the temperature up and turn it down? Yeah. But I, I just, when I was when I was looking at the, the glass house, doors, doors opened for me. Whereas with the wind turbines and biogas to a lesser extent, I was used to having doors slam in my face and having to batter them down. Later, whereas the glass house, everything was 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 opening. The planners were saying, "Yeah, yeah, go ahead, big as you like." Um, oh, really? Right. The, so there was the, there wasn't objections to that because it's quite. I mean, well, I, I'm from the borders. There's there's not many places where you have such big structures, is there, that, that that get through planning easily? No, there's not. And and I had built up quite a fan club uh, by that time with, with my other projects. So I still had a. I still had a core bunch of nutters um, that, <laughs> that just uh, agreed. <laughs> uh, well, they 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 still they objected, and they. I mean, that's the thing with with a lot of people in planning that they've got nothing else to do with their time, and they just yeah. It becomes what I call it a cancer of the mind that <laughs> they it, it just spreads as a poison inside themselves, and they have to let it out, and they they've got nothing better to do with their time, so they they. They've, they've dreamed all their life of a house in the country and then when they've got it, they've realised it's not that great a, great a thing and, and that they're, they're bored and, and they just take it out on, on people like, like me that uh, go and build things. So um, I, I had, uh, yeah, I still had a few people, but I mean, they, they were, I got the better of them then now and with the wind turbines, I, I realised it was far more fun to win than to lose. Yeah. So I had every every duck lined up in a row before I went into planning with that glass house. And not yeah. only that, the planning department were were 100% behind me because I had never, ever taken my frustrations out on the planning department. I realized that they were doing a difficult job with the, with the wind turbines. Yeah. And that, uh, that I don't think could have been said for the people who were who were against me. So the, um, the, the, the planners, I think, deep down wanted to see me get on mm-hmm. um, and so I had I then presented them with a project that they were happy to pass and they were happy to exert their authority I don't know this but I I deeply suspected that this was a project the glass house was they could say to to my objectors no 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 hang on a minute we're in charge here and uh, if Jim Shanks wants this then we're we're giving it to him so the, the door started opening the 
the, one of the first places I went to as well with glass houses was Lanarkshire. Okay. Um, I still have a, an SAC handbook that's um, that's in two thousand and four, and it's it's still got the gross margin for tomatoes, and it it's uh, quite in, incredible. Anyway, that's it. Just shows you that that Lanarkshire was growing tomatoes, you know, still into the early noughties in, in a in a reasonable fashion. So I spoke to uh-huh. a few people um, around about two thousand and twelve, two thousand thirteen. Can't remember, and I said, "Well, why did you start, and why did you stop?" Yeah. Well, we all started. We got grants to build these glass houses. Um, we developed a skills base, so we um, built up a skills base. Everything went grand until energy prices went up and supermarkets took over. Yeah. And, and that that was the sort of death after after many a, a prosperous year in Lanarkshire growing t- tomatoes. So I thought, well, can I overcome those two things? Can I overcome the supermarkets? And um, can I overcome the energy costs? Well, I knew I could do the energy costs mm-hmm. um, because of the, the renewable side of things. And I, whenever I spoke to supermarkets, they said, yes, yes, we're, we're, we're really keen to do this. I guess the, the problem I had with the supermarkets is they said, yeah, yeah, we're, we're really, really keen. Uh, show, us a, show us a sample. And I said, well, I can't show you a sample. They're going to be fantastic, but I can't show you a sample. <laughs> not grown was, any yet. <laughs> a bit of a chip and an egg to start with there. Yeah. Um, it's, no, it, it went, the, the glass house, we ended up building, what was it? We, we cleared the ground um, in 2015. Um, and then we built it 2016, and we've been growing 2017. This is our end of our fourth year growing. So that's that's where we are with the with the glass house. Um, so really enjoyed it. The, the there have been challenges, but nothing that we can't we can't overcome. But the the key, I guess, was doing the homework, and that's the key to any business is just yeah. do, do the homework before you start. And I was lucky enough that whenever I went for money, the the bank managers that I had to deal with and prove myself to realised that I had done my homework. Uh, before I started going asking banks for millions of pounds to, to and spend. did you get did you get many grants at that stage? Were there grants for the so the renewable side of things and for sort of diversification, or or was it mostly funded through loans? It was funded through loans okay. um, against the backdrop of the feeding tariff and RHI. Uh, if you got a grant, then you weren't you couldn't get it funded twice. So you, if you yeah, got a grant okay. for the capital spend, then you you couldn't get it for the the feed-in tariffs. So. Yeah, okay. That's, uh, but it, it made it easier to, to get the funding. And what the bank managers wanted to know was if your new business goes belly up, can your existing business scoop up the, the, the remains of it and carry on? Um, yeah. Because when I came out of college, it was all about security and do you have security for this? And if you had the security, then on you go. But, but no, it was there was the three parts. There was security, there was the um, the business plan and, and and budgets, but really, what it was all about was if the new new business goes wrong, can the existing businesses pick up the pieces? And yeah. so that's what we did. We went from the dairy, we built the biogas, um, and the dairy was the one that that funded that um, mm-hmm. in terms of provided the anchor for the for the lending. Then once we got the biogas up and running and I was able to say, look, it's doing exactly what I said it would do, then we moved on to the, the glass house. 
So. Yeah. So it didn't feel like such a big step and such a big gamble because you were sort of doing it in stages and proving proving yourself at each of those stages. I think the, the glass house was still a bit of a – the glass house was the one that was – sort of risk involved mm-hmm. i'd seen the biogas working in germany i'd seen all these biogas plants i knew the technology that worked and it was 100 percent backed up with the feeding tariff and rhi whereas the glass house was can you grow commercial tomatoes in scotland while everybody else is doing it in isla white and kent yeah you know can you actually do it in scotland and i was doing it on a slightly different model most people um, heated it through gas in the um, south of England, whereas I was doing it through renewables. Yeah. So I was coming at it from a slightly different angle, but everybody in the Tomato Working Party was saying, "No, it'll work. It'll work." Um, and, and it took took a bit of bravery to to actually go and um, go with it. Yeah. Uh, an important part, again, I mentioned it there at the start, was bringing the family with me. Yeah. So when we looked at the biogas, I'd seen it all. I'd seen it through the, through the, the Manafield travels. But what I did was I took Dad out to Germany and uh, let, let him see it for himself as to how it was working out, out in Germany. And he got the kind of bug for it because he mm-hmm. he had to tell his, his, his friends, oh, yeah, they, they do this and they can put the shit in here. And then, oh, <laughs> you know, it's great. And so when we came to the glass house, I just did the same thing again. I just got... I gave them contacts to go and visit glass houses in the UK. Yeah. And, you know, when I got to the point of no return, when it was all sort of cards on the table for the glass house and saying, well, this is what it's going to do, this is what I think it's going to earn, and that, they kind of said, well, just get on with it. What are you waiting for? Get get on with it. Whereas at the start, they weren't that enthusiastic about a glass house. They, they said, well, we'll always support you, but it's not something we would do ourselves. Yeah. But then by the time that we got to the point of no return, this is not not right. This is the right thing to be doing. Go and get on with it. Okay. And, and thank God it's worked. So, yeah, yeah. But having that support behind you is important though, isn't it? Like making that decision on your own must have been, would have been and, tough, but yeah. to have this family support just gives you that extra boost. And the other thing is there'll always be bad times. They'll always, yeah. and you need, God, you need the family behind you. Yeah. You need, you need some people to talk to, people to, to support you, people to challenge you, yeah. uh, challenge you honestly. But there's so many difficult times that you need, you need the family behind you. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, so, so important. Yeah. Uh, massively important. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned that you had the sort of early on discussions with the supermarkets. How did you kind of conduct your your market research and and, and how were tomatoes sold? Have you got contracts with them like you would with grain or milk? Uh, no, the, the the tomatoes. It's a very difficult thing to get into, but okay. once you're into it, it's there's a, there's a there's a good demand. Right. Um, we what happened. We had Mark Suspenser saying, yeah, we want everything that you can buy out of the okay. glass house. They right. then changed. This was before we, we, we built it before. And we went into planning, uh, and then they changed their buyer and said, ah, um, no, we don't. It's, it's going down the priority list. And I thought, all oh, right, shit. Um, so Scotty Brand, that were Bartlett's, mm-hmm. they came on and said, yeah, we can – we can do uh we can buy x amount a year um 
And then actually by the time that we came to build it, that Marks and Spencer came back in and said, actually, yeah, we want we want a bit of this. Um, the the first year we were with Scotty Brand and Marks and Spencer. Okay. The Marks and Spencer was difficult because um, the bureau- bureaucracy involved. Uh, I, I guess I I never understood that we we needed a bodily fluid cleanup kit. That was one of the things we got marked down for. That, <laughs> Uh, the mind boggles a bit, doesn't it? Yeah, a, a shovel and some debt all just isn't good enough for them. That they, they demanded a bodily fluid cleaner. Anyway, there's, there's, there's a whole host of things. <laughs> that That's the one that sticks in the memory. But Scotty Brand just weren't able to sell um, what they proposed to, to sell. Okay. Um, we ended up halfway through that first year uh, selling tomatoes to Holland, which is a bit like Coles to Newcastle. But yeah. funny, the... Um, there was flower lorries delivering flowers from Holland into all the local border towns. So we just put the tomatoes in these empty flower lorries that were going back over, okay. and we, we could sell tomatoes. But that was, yeah, there was there was there was times where the stress in that first year was absolutely unbearable. Yeah. And it was through that first year that the the, the people that supply Morrison's and Asda, Len Wright Salads, had came. Len, the boss, he came up himself, and he says he says, listen. Um, this is what I'm willing to offer for next year. He said, I want you involved. We are, we are the main suppliers to Morrison's and Asda. So anything that comes with a Morrison's sticker on it and Asda and the salad more or less has been packed by, by Lenwright Salads down in Southport. So after the unbearable stress that year um, yeah. of, of having to just some quite often have to find markets out of, out of nowhere, that was that's who we've been with ever since okay. and uh, i still don't tire of seeing a lorry coming in twice a week and taking every single piece of fruit out of the out of the store uh, yeah. and seeing it all gone and i know that that's going to be found a home for and um and, and paid for and uh, so so that's where we've been ever since um okay. we think we think very a lot of len right salads they they just know tomatoes yeah they know salads and they know tomatoes yeah. And so what's your growing season? Like you say, you get a couple of lorries a week. Um, can you grow tomatoes all year with these glass sizes or is there like a winter period where you're kind of shut down? We have a winter shutdown. Okay. And I think it's a fantastic thing. We get the plants in middle of January, about two months old. Mm-hmm. So a propagator will grow these from seed. Right. Um, we get them just under two months old in the middle mm-hmm. of January. We then... Uh, put them in our glass house. We keep them, and round about the end of March, very beginning of April, we'll start producing fruit. So we'll start picking, say, start very start of April. Right. Uh, that goes up into peak season round about May time, mm-hmm. because the plant just thinks that daylight's never ending. That the days are just getting longer and longer, and the plant can just produce as much as it wants because it's always going to have this never ending daylight. So once it starts to realise that there's a plateau in daylight. The plant says, "Whoa, hang on a minute here. Just can't can't put as much on as I thought." So, the I guess the, the plant goes on a, on a, a real high in production through end of May, start of June, and then it just settles down till about the middle of August, and then it just goes in a slow uh, decline till the middle of November, and we haul out everything in the middle of, at the middle of November. We disinfect it. Um, we clean everything out, we fog it, 
and everybody goes off for two weeks holiday over Christmas and New Year, apart from me because I'm milking cows. Of course. Um, <laughs> and the great thing about that is it gives a break to the glass house yeah. because a lot of guys grow under lights and they oh, never okay. get rid of disease because there's yeah. all so they'll quite often have maybe four blocks of glass houses and they'll always have one that's in crop at any one time and right. that always provides a d- disease bridge so it's very very difficult to get disease out of a glass house uh, when you've got a lit crop so right. yes you can grow all year round under lights but very very expensive thing to do um, okay yeah very expensive. a decision you took early on not to do that just for a number of reasons well, uh, yes we didn't yeah. have the power um, we, we would need four megawatts of energy an hour to mm-hmm. be able to put lights in that glass house. So yeah. it's, I think you have to become very skilled at what you do with glass houses and become established for, before you start moving into to lights. And I'm not entirely sure that the ones that, that have got lights really want them. I think they're more pushed to have them by the buyers yeah. than yeah. actually want them. Yeah. Yeah. We're kind of old-fashioned in that way. We're the only glass house that, that employs 100% uh, local staff right. uh, we're the only one in the UK that does that um, so we keep on more full time staff and that allows us because we've got we do the winter clean out ourselves that allows us to keep the staff on all year round so okay. we are yeah. a little bit old fashioned that way um, but I think it works I know I know, I know it works uh, yeah. we've yeah we, the, the crop is looking very very healthy touch wood and it's it benefits from that break and also so do the staff it's, it's a great thing that i've never been used to a business that actually shuts down for two weeks over christmas and new year certainly now, not farming yeah no uh, yeah. so that i i do i like the um i like the social aspect to the, the the glass house yes there is checks to be done at the weekend but they're nowhere near uh the the workload involved in terms of milk and cows through a yeah. weekend and such likes. It's, it's a fairly sociable, a gentlemanly business, uh, <laughs> if, if you like. So how many uh, staff do you have now? Um, the staff depends on what tomatoes you grow. Okay. Um, so we are dealing with about 10 full-timers there just now, mm-hmm. and we'll have about 10 pickers. But that's okay. way reduced from what it was. We were we were up about 40 in, in, oh, wow. the, in the first year. Yeah. Um, we've we've really a that the staff have got better at what they do, mm-hmm. and but also we are growing varieties of tomato in the vine now. Well, if you're right. growing in the vine, then all you need is one snip to pick to pick the vine. Yes. Whereas if you're picking loose, especially small loose, then it takes a long, long time to pick, and you need quite a squad of people. Yeah. But we work with we work with students. Um, okay. They're great. They're brilliant. They smart. Smart kids locally that um, we ask for two references of the teachers, and they're just they just work they work well. They've they they, they come in, they enjoy the work. They're working in a dry, clean environment. Yeah. Um, if they pick well, they pay piece rates. If they pick well, they can make they can make good money. And yeah. uh, and they've just been, they're just a joy. They just get on with things. They don't they don't give you back chat or anything like that. Um, but the yeah they're great they're great I can't I can't talk highly enough of them and the full timers are also local local as well. So that first year where you went from presumably just having your father yourself your mother maybe a, a dairyman or something to suddenly having forty staff that's quite a change from from being a farmer to uh, essentially a 
a manager. How did you cope with that challenge? Well, we had a manager for the glass house, but okay. um, we don't have him anymore. Um, we we part a company a couple of years ago, but it really comes down to that. If you're going to ask staff to do a job, you've got to make sure they do it, uh, okay. because there'll always be somebody that'll try uh, uh, to get away and cut corners. And if you accept that, then the whole thing, the whole house of cards falls down. And yeah. I see it in other managers. I see it in you know, sports managers, football managers, rugby managers, that the ones that are hard but fair are the ones that are successful. Okay. Because if, you're, if, you, if you ask for standards and that people are not keeping to those standards, if half the people are not keeping to them, half the people are, then the people that are keeping to them say, well, aren't we the donkeys? Because yeah. we've been asked to do that work and so-and-so's getting away and getting paid the same as me and not doing keeping to those standards, and the manager doesn't really care. So I'm very, very particular, and, and I see that more and more. Uh, I quite often look back to my old headmaster, Jim Telfer, and, and the thing about Jim Telfer, when he coached rugby, yes, he was a hard, hard man, but he was fair. He was very much a fair man, and yeah. uh, I think people re- respected him, even though he was... Goodness me, he gave out some beastings on the uh, on the, the rugby field. Yeah. People knew that if they did not adhere to his standards, then uh, then they were out. And yeah. that there was no preloading, no passengers, that if you were in his team, you worked. Um, and, and I saw that at school, and mum taught at Oikai School, and, and she appreciated that as well. And I, I know that, that she, um, as, as a teacher, she enjoyed uh, Jim Telfer as a boss. Okay. Um, because he was he was hard, but he was fair. Yeah, and, and you avoid you, resentment that way, don't you? Yeah, that's yeah. it. If if it's one rule for everybody, then folk know where they stand. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the way it has to be. Yeah. So, with all the different enterprises you've got running on the farm, uh, how do you make sure that your business is running efficiently? Have you got any top tips, things that you that you do? I know what I need to do mm-hmm. on every single enterprise. Um, I know I have to be involved enough with every enterprise um, to, to make sure that it that, that it works and it works well. I own everything in this this farm, so we are dovetailed. A lot of the businesses are dovetailed and rely on on one another. Mm-hmm. Take for example the biogas, and sometimes you get big biogas plants, and and you've got one person responsible for the feedstock, one person responsible for the, the pumps and the biology, one person responsible. And sometimes it doesn't work, but because it's not your department, it doesn't matter. The classic is that if there's a foot bath you're using for the dairy yeah. and that, that foot bath goes in the slurry and starts killing the bugs in the biogas, mm-hmm. I know about that. Yeah. There are people that would be buying in slurry wouldn't know about that. So yeah. there is there is a benefit I've got that I own everything and that that I know everything must must work. Yeah. Um, we um we pay back debt. We don't mess about with debt. We know how debt can get can get out of control. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dad built a cow shed and, and and bought his father a home in the early eighties and, and interest rates went up to seventeen percent so we we know how how debt so we don't mess about with it we, we get it paid back and that's something we're very focused on is is the amount of debt that we that we pay back 
okay. each year. Um, yeah. We don't really live all that fancy, but we, we like to pay back debt. Okay. Um, but staffing is, is the one thing throughout the, the whole of the businesses that we stand or fall by. Um, if we get the staffing right and everybody's pulling their weight um, and we don't carry any passengers, then generally the businesses run run well. The the downfall of most glass houses, I would say, is is being overstuffed. Okay. Um, the downfall of most anaerobic digesters is that they rely on outside third party feedstock, and that if the price of that goes up, then the uh, the financial model doesn't doesn't work. And um, well, the downside. Of, a dairying is is a the downfall of, of, of dairies is, is I think getting this there's there's a there's a huge amount of things that can go wrong in a dairy, but I would say if you can get the right staff then then that helps a lot. And we, yeah. we have two super uh, Eastern European guys that, uh, that that help us out and they've both been there for ten years now. Okay. And uh, I think without them I don't think we'd we'd have a dairy actually. They are yeah. absolutely super and I cannot talk highly enough um, of them. So we kind of enjoy just what we do, having all the different things. We enjoy being busy. Um, I know I'm kind of maybe getting away from your your, your question there. Yeah. But uh, we 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 are starting to to pay down debt to a level where we're, we're happy with it, and we're starting to do other things. We're we're doing a kitchen there. Uh, I believe it's the first time our kitchen's been redone since 1972. <laughs> um, and but we're we starting to just just spend spend a wee bit uh, cash about the place. And um, but no, it's just very satisfying to see everything's everything running as it should do. Yeah. Um, yeah. But my challenge is moving forward. Is that if I wanted to expand or or do something, is then I have to be a better. I have to get the manager, the, the manager issue right, and um, I I have to become, I guess, a better better businessman, and that these businesses have to run even when I'm not uh, looking over them all the time. So that's that's probably a challenge for me going forward. I don't think I'm I don't think I'm far away, but um, I, I still think that that's probably the one thing that I'd, I'd have to improve on. Um, that's kind of answered my next question, which is, what do you think makes your business and you personally particularly resilient? Would you say that is your staff? I, I think oh, the staff are brilliant. We, I mean, there's no two ways about it. We've got good staff, and I better not rave about it, or else somebody will be on the phone wanting to nick them. Uh, <laughs> uh, so the, the staff, the staff allow me to do. There's no way that I could do all this without brilliant staff. Um, I happen to think that in terms of resilient businesses, yes, we're diversified. We've got the backup with the feed-in tariffs, so we with a with the biogas and the RHI with the biogas and the boilers. Yeah. So we've got a lot of things that I know I can count on. Mm-hmm. But I happen to think tomatoes are a good business. We consume twenty-five percent. We no, let me get this right. We we only produce 25% of what we consume in the UK. All right, so okay. 75% still bought in. Mm-hmm. Um, I think tomatoes is a, is a pretty is a pretty good industry to be in. Yeah. Um, vegan proof. It's, um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of things going for it. Yeah. Uh, so that, that's, we've, we've, we've got a wee mix. However, you know, we've been lucky through this COVID in the businesses that we've got, and that's all it's been is luck. 
But if I went into growing flowers for flowering, you know, ornamental flowers, then yeah. then I wouldn't have a business anymore. That no. that would have been wiped out this year. Yeah. So we've been lucky. We've been lucky that every business has has fared reasonably well, and that's what I've taken. I, I've don't take things for granted very often and i think if we can get through this year where everybody's still in place and all the business is in place then i'll be happy at the end of this year yeah um, so that's that's what i'm trying to do i was going to ask you how, how has covid impacted your business presumably with having local staff you've not been relying on seasonal staff coming from abroad and your market is still there as you were saying versus other sort of luxury products if you like 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 cut flowers or you know a tourism diversification has there been any negative impacts of covid on on the way that you've been working little bits but not um, not yeah. that, um, it's been no hardship yeah, uh, we've been asked to we were asked to reduce milk by three percent production in the spring. Okay. Um, we've the electricity price has been very very low um, for the the biogas, um, but it's it's been no hardship. Uh, yeah. Whereas there, there have been people out there through no fault of their own, through no fault of their, their businesses, have had hardships. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm if we can just see out this year and, and hopefully get into calmer waters next year then I'll be, I'll be quite happy and so what do you think are the biggest challenges that are coming up for farmers at the moment in scotland uh, you know we've we've talked about covid and things but obviously we've got brexit and variable prices and climate change or any of these things you think particular concern for your business yeah i would always the, the one thing that i always have a gripe about is bureaucracy that bureaucracy is the biggest industry in the uk and it's relentless um, we have too many people thinking up too many ideas that don't have a, a sound footing in the, the in, in the industry that they allegedly serve, and it's very very difficult to push back bureaucracy. I think David Cameron had a good thing. He said, you know, if it's if it's one one bit of bureaucracy in, you've got to take one bit bit out. That um, bureaucracy is is the one that that really. Um, I tear my hair out for the hair that I've got left. I tear my hair out at what bureaucracy that we have to go through. And it's the needless. We all need regulation. You know, there's, the economies have to be regulated. But we, in the UK, take it to the nth, nth degree. And that that is where I see it becoming so, so difficult um, to to run, run a business is keeping on top of the bureaucracy as well as doing all the other things that everybody used to, to have to do in a, in a business. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, I, I regard it as Britain's biggest industry um, before pharmaceuticals and insurance and financial services. Bureaucracy is our biggest industry. And we, we, um, I mean, East Germany got to a, to a silly phase where they had 52% of the population watching the other 48%. And I do feel that it's sometimes like that, like that here, not not in the same the same violent way that that was, but we have a huge huge sector watching over regulating the the, the primary producers, and, uh, yeah. and everybody's got to be supported. I see, I see that everybody that drives in this farm, apart from somebody that's lost, everybody that drives in this farm farm road has to be paid for. Whether it be the postman, whether it be the salesman, it doesn't get the deal. Whether it be the 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 bureaucrat, uh, everybody. I have to pay for everybody that comes in that road, apart from the person that's lost. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's, it's, a it's a heavy weight to bear and it's getting it's getting heavier and heavier yeah yeah um so have you got any goals and aspirations for your business are you happy just doing what you're doing this now or have you got long-term plans for for something even bigger and better i have but i'm not going to tell you <laughs> <laughs> that's fine <laughs> uh, we, we're actually we've came to a stage in life where we've got three young kids. Martha is six, Anna was five yesterday, and George is two. Uh-huh. And the, we're at the stage where, when these kids have been young, we're just coming out of the stage now that we had massive amounts of debt here in the farm, and we had young kids, so we weren't really, we were quite happy being homebound and just not doing anything fancy, just just sitting there because we were paying down debt. But young kids, you don't want to be going away taking them fancy holidays when they're young anyway because yeah. they never, never, never remember it, never appreciate it. So we've we've had that stage. So the, the two of them have worked in quite well at our stage of, of life. But now I'm starting to think, you know, where where we're going in business and what the kids might, might want to do. I'm not encouraging yeah. my son to go into dairying. Um, and quite often I feel that... Yeah, Somebody asked me, who do you work for? I didn't quite understand until he explained it. And he said, well, you know, do you do, you do things for your wife? Do you do things for your parents? Are you doing this for your staff? Are you, you know, who, what, what tractor? Did you bought that new tractor, but was it was it actually for you because you never drive it? And, and what, uh, and, and I guess that maybe looking forward to the tomato side of things is that is more for the kids. Yeah. And looking at the dairy side of things is more for for mum and dad. That's kind of where I where I maybe fall. So mm-hmm. um, I'm not entirely sure what, what when I say it like that. What what it is I do for myself? Uh, <laughs> that, that's not that's not true. I mean, I have I enjoy all what we do. I like being busy. I like I like having a busy place. I like being productive. Yeah. I'm trying to be productive and um, trying to be fair for the, the people that come here and work and making them them happy as well but then again that goes back to making trying to make somebody else happy and and sometimes not not getting around to myself but um i'm 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 quite happy with the way the way things are are in life and yes we have we have got plans but um more plans just now yeah so what's been the biggest high point for you in your farming career so far oh sometimes you don't see it sometimes you don't see the woods from the trees Mm-hmm. And sometimes you're you're so fixated with the things that are not going right, but that's a good thing because if you're if you're fixated with things that are not going right and you're putting them right, then that's a good thing. Sometimes you just need your wife, your parents, to say step back a minute, Jim, and just have a look at what you've done instead of focusing every day on the the little things that are going wrong. Sometimes it you, you need you need. Um, you need them to, um, to 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 pull you back out of the out of the trees and see the forest or whatever the the saying is. I guess the high point would be when when Princess Anne come to open the glass house. That was, oh, wow. that was pretty uh, yeah. pretty amazing. Um, yeah. We've got Prince Philip here as well. I have you. Uh, oh, brilliant. Uh, you as a fiddle the old bugger was. He was nice. He was about the fittest one in the, the glass house. Quite a character as well. Yeah. But Princess Anne was just brilliant. She had time for everybody. She was born into that job. Yeah. But, you know, she, if they'd if they'd interviewed people for that job, they could have had ten thousand applicants, and she'd still have got the job because she was so authentic and into what everybody was doing and everybody was telling her she took time for everybody and she was she was pretty good 
she was genuinely interested. Yeah. Than that. She was brilliant. Uh, yeah. A real social just gym. She she just she she could do things that uh, and and bring a smile to people's faces. Uh, that was that was fantastic. I um I got I got from a personal point of view I got given the um the only one to have won all three awards after they've done enough your scholarship. So once you do enough oh, okay. you get a presentation and a report. So there's a prize for each of them. So I was I was the only one that ever won both of them. But then there's now a third prize for uh, for those that have done the most with the scholarship, and that's ten years after you've done okay. you've done your so I um, I got that last year so oh, I wanted to do, do the double and, and I've done the treble and yeah. that was that was quite uh, yeah quite a thing for me there was other name Martin Thatcher the, the cider brewery these type of people that had won the, the, the award 10 years after and to be to be see, see my name up along, alongside them was, was quite humbling uh, so that was a real uh, high point there last last October, uh, November when I got that got that That's award fantastic. and done the, the hat trick. So really really proud of that. I bet, yeah. So um, this is my final question then, Jim. What is success for you, and how do you measure it? Oh, success is being happy, mm-hmm. and uh, success is. Somebody told me, "What is it? Being happy is something to have." something to look forward to and something to share, someone to share it with. Yeah. And that's, that's success. Um, it's for me, it's never been about money, but then again, I've never had to worry about money all my life when, you know, I've always had food on the table, yeah. uh, which is massively important. We take too much for granted. And yes. uh, this life that we worry about all the stupid little things that don't matter, all the materialistic um, crap that is going about, we, we worry about that. And they, they, don't, they don't matter. Uh, success is is being happy, being having having you know healthy family around about you. Um, it's it's never for me. It's it's never about money. It's financial success is is fine. But you don't really appreciate it, I guess, until you've had financial failure. Yeah. And we've never, we've never had that, thank God. Um, but too often, it, when people think of success, they see it in pound notes. Yeah. Which is not, uh, you can have all the money in the world, but you can't, you, you can't take it with me, with you. And I don't want to become the richest guy in the graveyard. That's yeah. something I'm trying to be very conscious of, that, that not taking on a huge, unbearable amount of stress. And it just getting too much, too much for me. So, uh, success for me is I'd love to take the kids to Disneyland, mm-hmm. uh, but they're not ready yet. Yeah. So uh, once this, you know, maybe in a couple of years, that that would be a big, big thing. Just I got to go to Disneyland when I was a kid. Just, just silly wee things, things like this. Success is my favourite time of the year is between when the clocks change in the spring and the Highland Show because you're getting days that are getting longer and uh, there's no fleas going about at that time of year. The grass <laughs> is growing on the side. Is there. You've got the seventh season in here in the borders. You've got Hoyt Common riding and then you've got the Highland Show to look forward to even after Hoyt Common riding's finished. So uh, that's that's just a great time of year and I really enjoy that. And uh, as long as I can enjoy those things uh, next year, I'll be a lot happier than 
know. Next year will be a big, a big one compared to this year. Absolutely. Uh, that's 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 what I that's that's what you know. I, I love days doing the rugby club and, and uh, having a beer and that sort of thing. And it's just, uh, but it's, it's having family around about you um, is is probably the, um, the the most successful thing that, that any any person can have. That's brilliant. So thank you very much, Jim, for taking the time to talk to us today and providing such an interesting and entertaining um, insight into your farming business. The Farm Advisory Service is recording four podcasts on resilience and business skills, which are being followed by a webinar. You can find out more about the Farm Advisory Service on our website, www.fas.scot, or if you need advice, call the helpline on 0300 323 0161.